Oh, it did this time. No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules. At the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And as uh, many of the hardcore listeners may know, we usually wrap things up with episode 33, but uh, we've got the season finale coming up in a couple weeks, so I wanted to throw in a special bonus edition of the program, which is that which is what you're listening to tonight here, Monday night, going head-to-head with Monday Night Football for a reason, because our guest tonight is Brian Tui. He is the preeminent sports conspiracist on the planet, really, my friends. And we're going to get into all that stuff tonight. He's the author of The Fix is In, The Showbiz Manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR, and then Larceny Games, Sports Gambling, Game Fixing, and the FBI. This is uh, some really compelling stuff. I actually was telling Brian before we started the show, I sat down and read The Fix is In over the last couple of days and just absolutely devoured this book. It's amazing. And I know we have uh, a a healthy population of sports fans in the BOA Audio listening audience. And uh, if you exist in the reality of the world today, you kind of have to know what's going on in sports. And really, you should be kind of aware of all the -the behind-the-scenes manipulation that are shaping the reality of the world we live in via sports. That's kind of why we're getting into all this. This is a tremendously relevant subject to the BOA Audio listeners, whether you realize it or not. And that's why I'm thrilled to have Brian on the show here tonight. I sat down and put together just a wealth of notes. I was telling him before we started, I just just sat down and just poured my brain out, and I was like, oh, no, there's too much to talk about. So enough of my yakking. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me on, Tim. I appreciate it. I guess, you know, we always start out when we have a new guest with the bio, the background. You know, tell folks who is Brian Tui and how did you get interested in all this? I got into all this on accident, <laughs> in reality. <laughs> I... Uh, I had uh, gone to school, film school, actually, and was a screenwriter. Um, never had anything produced, but after working in that industry for a long time and banging my head against the wall, my wife told me, go write a book. Stop doing the screenplay stuff, write a book. Mm-hmm. And so I said, all right, I'll listen to my wife for once. And <laughs> the book that I wound up writing was The Fixes In. And I wrote it because basically it was the sports book I wanted to read that no one else would write. So what it came from was the fact that I would always was interested in sports. I was a long-time sports fan. But I realized after a while that, you know, when I would read a book about sports, there would be 300 pages of fluff and two pages that were really, really interesting that should be expanded upon. And you read enough of these books and you see enough of these two interesting pages, I said, well, somebody needs to really kind of dig into this 
And then the more I looked at sports, the more I realized how much the leagues controlled everything that surrounds their games. I started wondering, well, could they potentially be controlling their games as well? And when I put everything together, that's what became the fixes in, and that kind of just started me down this path. You know, I should warn you ahead of time, I'm, I'm primarily a pro wrestling fan, so as not only a host of a crazy uh, paranormal conspiracy show, but also a pro wrestling fan. So this is like... This is like the Venn diagram of my life, this conversation, so I cannot wait <laughs> <laughs> to get into this because I'm all about the whole idea here. So uh, as I was telling the listeners when we started things out, you know, talk a little bit, catch them up to speed in a sense about the, the, the massive industry of sports. I think you say in the fixes in that it's the 22nd biggest industry, probably in the United States, maybe in the world. I'm not sure you can tell me that, but, you know, talk about how huge this thing is because it really is – uh, part of the fabric of our lives, really. Well, it is. And what I think many people fail to see sports as is what it truly is, and that's a business. I mean, the NFL makes a little over $10 billion a year. Major League Baseball isn't that far behind anymore. Then comes the NBA and the NHL. And combined, those four leagues alone make around $25 billion in revenue every year. And much of this money now is coming from television and the television networks. And, in fact, Really, the television networks fund professional sports these days, especially the NFL. The NFL gets about $6 billion a year directly from the likes of ESPN and NBC, CBS, Fox, and DirecTV. I mean, that's a ton of money, and they're beholden, I believe, to those entities because they fund them. I mean, that $6 billion literally pays every NFL player's salary. It does. It covers the uh, salary cap in the NFL. And so what I started to question, what I started wondering about was, if the NFL needs television to survive, how much does it cater to television? How much does it need to continue to keep increasing ratings to get more ad revenue, to get more profits? And in order to do that, what will they do? How far will they stoop to actually make sure those ratings and revenues continue to grow? And I think it comes down to the fact that nothing prevents a league like the NFL from fixing its own games for television purposes. Mm, mm. Yeah, we kind of hit it on the head. I was thinking about it before we started. It's like, it's interesting in a way, because this is my big complaint, uh, to throw back to the wrestling thing, my big complaint about wrestling, it, it used to be uh, a league that had a show, and now it seems like it's more a show about a league. And I think, like, sort of in a more subtle sense, that transition has happened to American sports, where it's become this, it used to be like this league that televised its games, but now it's like this reality show about uh, about a league, well, and that's just it. I, uh, reality TV is a great thing to compare it to. And they often, the funny part is, the leaks often compare themselves to reality TV, which is kind of mind blowing when you think about <laughs> it, because the leagues are entertainment. Sports is entertainment. And I have numerous quotes from various people in various sports saying, you know, we're part of the entertainment industry. We're entertainers. That's what we do. Well, when it gets down to the brass tacks of it all, there is, And this is a key thing I try to emphasize. There is no law that prevents a league like the NFL or the NBA from fixing its own games. There's no law that stops them from doing this. And the reason it is mainly is because it's entertainment. Hmm. And when you look at the two laws that come closest to regulating this, one is the Sports Bribery Act from 1964, but that basically covers if you bribe a player, a coach, or a referee into altering the outcome of a game, that's a federal crime. Okay, but that's mainly directed to gamblers trying to fix games. Yeah. But it doesn't really cover a league like the NBA saying telling the referees their employees how to do their job. <laughs> okay, even though they're getting paid, that's not a bribe, it's just saying, 
hey, we want you to control these games and we want you to manipulate these outcomes, they can do that perfectly legally because the other law stems from the Quisho scandals of the 1950s. And back then, which many people kind of forget about, was that the networks, television networks, manipulated game shows to make them more interesting. And the big scandal that came out of that resulted in a law that specifically states you cannot alter an intellectual contest for television purposes. It doesn't say anything about an athletic contest or a talent show. Hmm. So when you look at you know reality TV today and you look at things like The Bachelor, you look at things like you know Survivor, American Idol, America's Got Talent, all of that stuff can be nip- manipulated, and it is manipulated. I mean, they have writers, they have editors, they have producers that make sure that these shows are as entertaining as possible, and they will manipulate things to make sure that happens. Well, again, what's stopping a big business, a multi-billion-dollar industry like the NFL, from doing exactly the same thing? Hmm. My argument is nothing. And it would be in their best business interest to do this, to manipulate these games because of it being a business and because of the profits attached to it all. Yeah, yeah. It makes you, it's just the whole thing is like, it's kind of scary in a little bit of a way. It's kind of spooky, I guess, you know, because you just don't really, it kind of betrays your trust in a way once you start looking into it. You almost don't want to look into it, which I'm sure a lot of people, that's kind of their attitude where they're like, ah, they they probably dismiss it kind of easily because they're like, they'd rather not have that that bubble burst and, and yeah um, exactly they want to believe in the fairy tale of it all yeah and i mean i was in the same boat for a very long time and i don't begrudge them that fact but i think if you look at these things closer and you take your fan head off and you look at these things like the nfl as a business and what you would do as a business i think the more you take that perspective the more you realize that you know things may not be completely on the up and up despite the fact that you as a fan would want them to be doesn't make it true now, I was going to – one thing I want to ask you about, it kind of – it goes more into the industry of sports, and uh, forgive me if this isn't really your bailiwick, but I thought it, it's been kind of talked about in some regions. This is this uh, Recently, the NBA signed this huge uh, TV deal, and it, I think, they're, I think they're like, they were like the last league to, to sign something that uh, – everything else is going to run out like in 2020, and people seem to think that this is like a bubble that's eventually going to burst, and there's just no way that the TV industry can sustain – the costs of these of these leagues, of the rights to broadcast these leagues, and uh, and then eventually, like I said, the bubble's going to burst. Do you think that's that's going to happen, or do you think it's going to they're going to keep outpacing uh, you know the need for live programming? Well, I think it's very possible that it might burst. I can't say you know when I have a crystal ball that right. they, they will <laughs> or won't, obviously. But I mean, the one thing that it has on its side is sporting events are really one of the last things that have to be consumed live as they happen. Hmm. I mean, everything else, you know, on television, really, you can set your DVR and watch it a week from now or watch it on demand later. But sports, you really have to watch now. You know, I'm sure there's many people who might be listening who have tried to tape a game and get home and watch it without anybody telling them, you know, the score, what happened. And, you know, they're driving, and all of a sudden the guy on the radio, the DJ, says, oh, wasn't that a great game today? And you're glad the home team won, and it just ruined it for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. or or you know, you have to watch it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it's like the last resort, you know. It's like the desperate. You you might do it once a year or something. (laughs) That's how how impossible it is. Yeah, but that's that's it. I mean, that's one thing it has in its advantage is that, you can't not make it immediate for hmm. sports. But at the same time, how much money can the networks shell out to these leagues to keep those television rights? And, I mean, the NFL claims right now, like I say, it makes a little over $10 billion a year. Roger Goodell, the commissioner, says he wants to push that up to $25 billion a year. Well, 
I have no idea how in the world the NFL thinks it can do that. I mean, there's only, you know, each team only has eight home games to sell out. There's only so much I think these networks can pay to these leagues to literally fund them to keep that live entertainment going because, you know, at a certain point, it's saturated. You're not going to get any more watchers, no matter how, whether you manipulate games or not. You're not going to get any more watchers. There's only so many NFL fans in America that will tune in every week. Hmm. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a point in time where the television networks, the mainstream networks that are already having issues because of Netflix and cable and everything else, they're just not going to have the money, and there's going to be no other big guys out there that can give the money to the NFL and these other leagues like they want and demand. So I think you're going to reach a saturation point where it's not going to – it can't get any higher. It just can't, yeah. except for maybe inflation. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, they almost seem like they're ahead of the game with the inflation because they get so much money now. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're, we may be living in the golden age of, of, uh, <laughs> of Yeah, exactly. Sports. We very well may. There's, like, tons of stuff, like I said, I want to talk to you about. The thing that really piqued my interest to get you to talk to you in the first place uh, was all the stuff that went on last month with the NFL because it seemed like for the first time in a long time um, they, were really getting, they were really getting hit hard constantly. You know, it looked like Roger Goodell was going to lose his job for a while. There, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy, and it, it, it especially in the sense that you talk about this in the book. Especially, uh, the sports media doesn't really want to go after the leagues or anything like that. So I thought that was really remarkable in the sense. Like I said, it's kind of what planted the seed for me to get to talk to you because it was like all of a sudden they were talking about how the emperor had no clothes, and you've been saying that for years. So I thought that was really remarkable. So I guess talk a little bit about how you saw that all unfold last month and what do you think it means sort of for the behind-the-scenes machinations of, uh, you know, who's pulling the strings, who's in control, the battle for, you know, uh, say between, you know, the NFL and the leagues that, and the uh, the channels that present it and the ESPN and stuff like that. Well, it's funny, like you said, they were all calling for the, you know, they thought Roger Goodell was going to resign or get fired. Well, it's amazing, like you say, a month later, that's gone. <laughs> You know, nobody brings that up anymore. That's not even a question of thought, an idea in most people's heads. It's it's gone. It was just that immediate scandal and the immediate outbreak that caused all that. And it is interesting because in many ways and in many forms that I've shown over the years, you know, ESPN, again, they give a billion dollars a year to the NFL for Monday Night Football. They give now, I think, over a billion dollars, nearing $2 billion to the NBA for the right to broadcast their games, and Major League Baseball gets money from them as well. Now, how much is ESPN really going to investigate what it funds? Okay, because ESPN needs sports to survive because they're the sports network, right? Hmm. <laughs> so how much, you know, if they put a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars into the NFL, are they really going to go screaming at the NFL and attacking them for scandals and scandalous behavior, or are they going to try to make everything look hunky-dory because they want people to tune in and watch their games on their television network because that's how they're going to get that billion dollars back? Yeah. And I think that's the problem you run into is even on a local level with, you know, beat reporters and such for local newspapers and online, you know, if they want access to these teams and to these locker rooms and to the athletes, they have to write and say the right things, the correct things. Because if they write the wrong kind of article – they broadcast the right kind of news stories, they can lose access to those players and to those locker rooms. And if you're a beat reporter and your job is to cover Team A, and suddenly Team A says, well, you wrote the wrong thing about our team, you can't come into our locker room anymore, you're unemployed. <laughs> so yeah. if you can't cover the team, you you don't know what to do. You're Like I say, you're unemployed. So it kind of forces, 
from the beat level on up to the national level, it forces this self-censorship in the sports media world, where really, to my argument, is, is there's no investigative reporting in the sports media world at all. I mean, it's, it's horrible. I mean, in the regular media world, investigative reporting has kind of gone down the drain as well. But in the sports media world, it's even worse, hmm. where it's non-existent. The only time you see, like, the Ray Rice thing happen is because most of the time it's because of law enforcement doing its job and arresting some athlete or revealing some scandal. It's very rare, and I'd be hard-pressed to pinpoint certain aspects or certain stories where the sports media created its own scandal because they investigated something and discovered something. I mean, I, really, I mean, I'd love people to tell me something because I can't find any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what makes it frightening is the fact that they're not digging into these leagues. They should be the watchdog for the fans. They should be being the oversight. Instead, they're not. They're really complicit and complacent with the leagues and helping them promote their products because they're all in it together. They're all making money together. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, especially what you're saying right now rings a bell, too, because uh, it really resonated with me reading the book that, you know, as for, and I love sports, man. I really do. But for as much as everybody loves sports, it's like we're all kind of marks in this game. Um, because it's just an all, we just put out money and interest and everything. We never really get anything back other than sort of this intangible, uh, you know, maybe high from winning or something like that. But we never really, we don't benefit if, if, if the Red Sox win the World Series. I don't benefit in any way other than uh, the reflected glory that you talk about in the book. But so, so I think that's an important point to, to bring up because a lot of people get lost in that world and don't realize that they, they invest so much in something that they get absolutely no return in, really. Oh, exactly. That's why I started the fixes in the way I started it, is with talking about why do sports matter to you? I mean, as a fan. Because, like you said, you, a lot of people, and it's funny, especially if you listen to sports radio, when they call in and they talk about whatever favorite team they want to talk about, they usually say, we. We need to get better on offense. We need to have a better, you know, relief pitcher. We need this. You're not on the team, buddy. Yeah. Okay? Nothing personal. <laughs> You're not on the team. You can pay money to watch them. You can, you know, sit in the seats. You can watch them at home. But you're not on the team. And when they win, you don't get a championship ring. Okay? You don't get <laughs> yeah. paid. You don't. You're not part of the team. But the thing is, is the leaks know this exists. They know it's kind of like a drug. And that, as you mentioned, there's this thing called basking in reflective glory. When your team that you follow does well, it reflects on you, and it makes you feel good about yourself as a person. And I live in Wisconsin, so. I'm in the home of the Green Bay Packers, hmm. and I see this on a weekly basis during the NFL season. When the Green Bay Packers win, and I'm not really exaggerating too much, everybody in Wisconsin is happy. But when the Green Bay Packers lose, there's really like a depression that sets in over the state until the next game. Yeah, Because they're that into it, they're that involved in it emotionally and mentally, that it really it can really mess with their heads. And the leagues know this. They know... They have fans that are addicted like they're addicted to a drug, like it's crack cocaine or something like that. They have to watch. They have to follow. And they'll do everything they can. And those are exactly the type of people that makes it easy to prey on. Hmm. It's like that Patton Oswalt movie, The Fan. Yeah. <laughs> I uh. mean, it's really a, it's a, it's a weird state of affairs that, you know, again, being in Wisconsin and seeing this firsthand, you know, when you tune into the nightly news, especially during Packer season, literally the half-hour news program and I get, and this I'm really not exaggerating. Fifteen minutes of it will be devoted to the Green Bay Packers. Oh my God! I mean, when the Green Bay Packers were like on their run to the Super Bowl, you tuned on the news, 
the first story would be about the Packers. The second story would usually be about a Packer fan. The third story yeah, yeah. would be about some, you know, ten people got murdered. Sports would, or the weather would revolve around the weather for the Packers game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sports. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it drives me out of my mind because I can't believe people care that much, but that's the way it is today. I know what you mean, yeah. I'm I'm in Boston, so I get it just as much. Uh. <laughs> yeah, with the Red Sox and Boston strong and, yeah, all uh, that. It's crazy, yeah. It's absolutely crazy. Um now, one thing, I want to float a conspiracy theory to you in a way here. and I, I, I read it somewhere, I think maybe in the comments on Deadspin, but I'm not sure. But uh, the, 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 the interesting sort of trend this year was that TMZ broke the two big scandal stories of the year between the Donald Sterling thing and then the uh, Ray Rice video. Uh, they may have had both of the videos, uh, but I'm not sure. But definitely the, the more uh, explosive video yeah, that came out one, about yeah. a month ago. Um, someone kind of floated the idea that that TMZ is kind of like knocking on the door to get some kind of access, and you know these leagues are sort of rebuffing them. So this was their way of being like, "Hey, man, uh, play ball with us, or we have tons of stuff on tons of people. So, you know, here we're going to make it bad for you." And they kind of like push came to shove. That's kind of I heard someone kind of float that, and it makes sense to me in a way. It's sort of interesting that TMZ's this. Uh, you say there's no investigative journalism anymore. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call them investigative journalists, but they're they're doing something. Uh, that's shining a light on this stuff. So I guess I guess there's a lot in what I just said, but talk a little bit about what you think's going on there. Well, I don't know what what their motive would be. I mean, you could be right. They could. I mean, there is a TMZ Sports now, right? Which just started recently. I think within the past year. I mean, it could so, even I mean, be they, like backdoor access. Do you know what I mean? Where yeah. it's like they, they're not going to uh, the NFL is not going to tacitly be like TMZ's our official tabloid website or something like that. But it could be like they'll float them stuff, you know, sort of play ball with them in a way. Well, especially if TMZ keeps on the path they're on. Mm. And, I mean, let's face it, I mean, Deadspin has done it in the past, too. I mean, Deadspin had the whole thing with Brett Favre, you know, sexting that one girl and that sort of thing. They were kind of on top of that, and they were on top of that Manti tail and the catfishing thing where he had the fake girlfriend. Yeah. All that, I mean, but at the same time, I mean, I did, like, an investigative piece with Lance Williams at the Center for Investigative Reporting about a fixed baseball game. And before I hooked up with the Center for Investigative Reporting, I went to Deadspin with the story, and they wouldn't pick it up. Oh, wow. <laughs> Despite the evidence I had, they, they turned it down. And I had other people turn it down as well. But, I mean, they're one where I thought, all right, because I, I find them a little kind of TMZ, a little on the sleazy side of things. Was this Deadspin? Yeah, and so I didn't necessarily want to go with them, but I was kind of like, well, I'm not sure where else to go, and I'm pretty sure these guys will do it, so let's head that way. What about Grantland? Even, they didn't. Did you try Grantland? Uh, I did not try anybody there because I figured ESPN and game fixing and Major League Baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're already that wasn't <laughs> you're already kind of like on the on the yeah. on the list at ESPN. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I didn't do that, but I mean, you see, you know, these other alternative kind of sports outlets. And they do get their scoops because I think there's a lot more dirt out there on these athletes and these play games and you know the referees and coaches and stuff than people understand. Mm. And I think the leagues do a very, very good job of keeping us under wraps because of their security divisions. And the more I dig into those, the more I realize they exist simply to cover things up like this, but they can't cover it all up. I mean, you look at the Ray Rice thing, as the guy in TMZ said during Roger Goodell's press conference, you know, we made one phone call to get this video. How could you say you never saw this video? Well, I don't think that's true. I think the NFL is lying to you. This guys at the security department know exactly what they're doing, and they would have had that video. It's just the NFL tried to lie, and they got caught. Right, what right. What it boiled down to. 
Well, like I said, that's the story that kind of uh, planted the seed for me to talk to you in a way. And and uh, do you think we're going to get? Do you think this thing? This I, I know the thought that it kind of died out a little bit. But do you think this is going to get bigger in any way? Do you think it's going to turn into more scandalous, or do you think they're going to issue some kind of like in-house report that's going to kind of make it all go away and, uh, and oh, they'll be a fall guy or something? Away. They'll make it go away. I mean, there's already talk about Ray Rice coming back to the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it didn't take very long for it just to flow over, and that's what the league's really good at, and I think they're good at that because the fans are so accepting, mm. and they don't, I think in many ways, really, fans don't care about that sort of thing. They don't care about the criminality in the sport. They don't care, you know, if Ray Rice beat his girlfriend or not. They just want to see him do well on the field or not do well on the field because he's not on their fantasy team. You know, whatever it boils mm. down to, I don't think the fans really care. I mean, one of the few times you can point to fans Create and that's the big thing, really. The fans can change this culture if they want to, if they're really boisterous enough about it. Because they really, the fans, in my opinion, changed baseball because of the steroids. I mean, the fans were all cool with Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa hitting home runs, despite the fact that they were all roided up. But when Barry Bonds did it and was such a jackass about it, <laughs> that's when fans turned, and that's when Major League Baseball said, "Oh, you know, we might have a problem." And they only said that because so many fans got upset and were angry and. You know, they saw it basically affecting their bottom line and their money. That's yeah. when they did something about it. And that's, I think, with the Ray Rice thing, if more fans were angry about it and kept on the NFL about it, then you would see some sort of change. But, you know, the season's half in, and now people just have forgotten it all happened. Well, one of the good things that has come out of it, and uh, it may, you know, it probably will go back to being a big mess uh, down the line, but uh, the, the, it's become such a public relations debacle. Like you point out in, in The Fixes In, it's eerily prescient, actually, because uh, you talk about the rampant domestic violence problem of the NFL, and that was written like four years ago, and then it really exploded with all this, and at least now there's sort of this public relations backlash where if these guys get arrested for something like that, the league is like shamed into doing something about it. Well, and that's just it. It's not that they they care. Hmm. Right, <laughs> you know, right. It's not that they care that their athletes are beating women or beating their children. They really don't care. They only care because, again, it becomes a public thing, and it's something they have to deal with, and people get upset, and then it becomes, like you say, a public relations thing. It's not yeah. that they care. They don't care that the guys take steroids and human growth hormone or they're doing cocaine or whatever. They don't care. They just care because fans care. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a big difference. It's it's sad, but it's the way of the world. And, I mean, like you know, Goodell said with the Ray Rice thing that they're going to have a uh, – domestic violence policy in place by the Super Bowl. It's like, well, how long do you really need to figure out that your athletes beating women is bad (laughs) and that you have to punish them? You really need until February to figure that out, man? That's how (laughs) long it takes? Come on. (laughs) You know, how hard is this? But yet, that's the way the NFL is going to operate. Yeah. It's 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 crazy stuff. It really is. Uh, it's it's really crazy stuff. It was quite a week there where all, a whole bunch of different things all happened at once. Where you're like, holy shit, they're really in a lot of tr- trouble here. Uh, they're but again, and they got out of it. That's yeah, the, that's the part that amuses me is the fact that they were in a heap of trouble, and they just managed to d- dance their way right out. Yeah, you know what's it's frustrating to me, I guess, in a way too, because it's like I've found myself really cynical about it. But then I look around, and nobody else really is as cynical, you know, so except for, like, you know, some places, some reporters, some things like that. Like, sometimes, like, Deadspin will be kind of cynical about things. Like, the story about how the uh, how the NFL wanted the Super Bowl Halftime Act to pay to play the Super yeah. Bowl. It's like, things. I read things like that, and I'm just like, 
I don't even I don't even want to support like a company that's this that, that that's this crazy and tyrannical. Yeah. But yeah, well, at the same time, though, you know, <laughs> yeah, part. most exactly, most people they don't care. They just, oh, now it's going to be Katy Perry. Okay, great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they forgot all about the other stuff. That's right. Like, okay. Considering the the listenership here is heavily uh, skewed toward the conspiracy side and sort of these clandestine government groups, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the. You already mentioned it, but I read a fascinating article I think in the Washington Post about uh, these these leagues' security forces. And how really elaborate that, that their surveillance sort of is on, on teams, on players, on coaches, and all that stuff. And it all exists way under the radar. Nobody really knows about these, these people who do this kind of stuff and that this is even going on. So I guess talk about that and bring people up to speed on that, that really under-discussed uh, thing. Well, I think the, the best story is my personal story in that when I wrote the second book about sports larceny games, one of the things I did is I managed to get an interview with Warren Welsh, who was the former head of NFL security. And he was also a former FBI agent, among other things as well. And I talked to Warren. Warren actually had to get me cleared by the NFL to talk to him, despite the fact he didn't work for him anymore, which right there should tell you something. <laughs> he no longer was employed by the NFL, but he had to call the NFL to make sure it was cool he talked to me about what he did. <laughs> and apparently they cleared me, which even in and of itself kind of surprised me. Yeah. But I talked to Warren for an hour the first time I called him. And and I'm not exaggerating. When I was done after that hour speaking to him, I still had no idea what NFL security did. Hmm. Okay. I talked to a guy for an hour about the subject, and I still didn't know what they did when I was done talking to him because he talked in such a circuitous fashion that I just, it was, he would say stuff like, you know, well, one of our jobs was maintaining the liaison with the FBI and local law enforcement so we know what was going on. And, you know, it was just these really kind of vague terms and ideas. But the fact of the matter is, you know, these security divisions for all the major sports are literally staffed with former members of the FBI, the CIA, the DEA, Secret Service, and local law enforcement. I mean, these are guys who have serious law enforcement backgrounds who run the security divisions for the leagues. And in some fashion, they do act as security. You know, they provide security for referees to get into the stadiums and for players and things of that nature. But they also exist, my point is, they exist to cover things up. Yeah. Because they have such good connections with the FBI and local law enforcement that they find out things before the press ever can, and then they get in there and snuff them out. Mm. They make sure, you know, and I have this. I mean, I have record of this. I mean, I have FBI files, which I dug up for larceny games. In fact, I was the only one to ever access these files. And in it, it talks about how, in several occasions, the leagues would come to the FBI and say, hey, we know you're investigating this game because you think it might have been fixed. Um, we need you to step away, and we'll handle it. And amazingly, the FBI would. <laughs> they would just let the league do what the league needed to do. And really, since the 1980s, the FBI has completely gotten out of the business and turned it all over to the professional sports leagues to let them investigate themselves. And it's led to some serious abuses and some serious questions as to what they do and what they can do because they're not the police. I mean, that's what makes it really frightening. Yeah, that's it's that's bizarre that they just – that's really Well, I mean, just I mean, to make a comparison, I mean – Think for a second, like, if you took a major corporation, whoever, Exxon, and Exxon knew they had some sort of criminality within their, you know, you know, home office, and it's serious criminal stuff, federal crime type stuff, 
And instead of going to the FBI and rooting out those criminals, they just decided to handle it all in-house and take care of it. Hmm. I mean, that's what we're talking about. (laughs) Because one of the things I investigated, again, with this guy Lance Williams from the Center for Investigative Reporting, was an allegation of a fixed Major League Baseball game in 2012. And basically what Major League Baseball security was able to do somehow is instead of going to the FBI with the information they had, which is what they should have done, because, again, we're talking about a federal crime and fixing a game uh, for gambling purposes, Major League Baseball, as far as I know, never contacted the FBI, despite if they should have gone there, done that, and walked away Hmm. and let the FBI do it. They never contacted the FBI. What they did instead is somehow, basically, I think, because the two investigators from Major League Baseball used to be New York police officers, they went to the NYPD and their organized crime division. That division somehow was able to get an Arizona Sheriff's Department, the famous Sheriff Joe, in fact, his department, to pull over the gambler in the story's family at gunpoint, yeah. <laughs> hold them at gunpoint until they produced the gambler. When the gambler showed up, they held the gambler at gunpoint until Major League Baseball showed up and could interrogate the guy. Okay, now imagine, you know, again, Exxon doing that, or imagine Microsoft doing that, or Apple or Google, and people would be flipping out. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, a major corporation can't do that, but yet Major League Baseball did exactly that. And despite the fact that we wrote this article, it was in Sports Illustrated, and it got a lot of play, no one in the sports media seemed to blink. (laughs) They just were like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Wait a second, how did baseball do this? How could they do this? I mean, how is this allowed? I don't know. Yeah, but it was. It's crazy if you think about it. It's like wow. the police hold the, the the guy there until until baseball can come and <laughs> investigate him. That's just so backwards. And it's and it's not. He was not charged with the crime. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He was never charged with the crime by law enforcement. He was charged with the crime by Major League Baseball. How does Major League Baseball have that sort of you know hold over the law enforcement? I don't know. To this day, I still don't know. It's 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 weird. It's really weird stuff. Now, you, a big part of your uh, milieu, if you will, is game fixing. That's kind of the that's kind of one of your big uh, big tentpoles yeah, of main thing, research. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, you seem to put across the idea that there's two sort of forces at work here when uh, games may be fixed. The gamblers, uh, you know, the uh, I guess that's the best point. Yeah, the gamblers. Yeah. And the folks who pull the strings on all that, and then the leagues themselves. So I guess first we'll talk about the the gamblers because I was really blown away. I listened to some of your other interviews on Coast to Coast, and uh, obviously read the book in the past couple of days. I was just really blown away because I'm just an average fan. I just watch you know ESPN, PTI, Oberman, that kind of stuff, and watch the games. And and I, I don't gamble, so I could not believe how massive the, the this gambling is. I just could not believe how much money is involved in sports gambling. I must be completely naive, but I was stunned by it. So I guess for the other naive folks in the audience, bring them up to speed on how enormous sports gambling is. Well, I think you're right. I think a lot of people don't recognize how big it is, and I don't think they even understand that if they do bet with their local bookie, in many ways they're funding organized crime. (laughs) I I don't think people make that connection, but... The funny part about figuring out how much you know illegal gambling, sports gambling is going on in the country is nobody knows really the true estimate. Hmm. Um, what we can go on is Las Vegas or Nevada, I guess, really, 
um, where it is legal to bet on sporting events in the state. They supposedly, they claim to account for about 1%, maybe up to 3% of all the sports gambling done in the United States. Now, in 2013, Nevada took in $3 billion in sports bets. Okay? Now, if that was 1% of all the sports gambling done in the United States, that means the illegal gambling underground is a $300 billion a year business. Jesus. <laughs> if, it's, if Las Vegas accounts for 3%, then it's only a $100 billion a year illegal business. But either way, it's, fund, it's all funding organized crime. In fact, it's probably the, if not the number two, biggest moneymaker for the mob. Because what happens is, is when people bet with their local bookie, basically they kind of, the little fish in a way feed the big fish in this industry. You know, you bet with your local bookie $50, and then your bookie, because he, a lot of people bet on their home team, can't handle all the action on one side of a game. Like, you know, everybody who's betting on the Bears, they can't have everybody betting on the Bears. They want everything 50-50. Hmm. So whoever the Bears are playing, like, for example, they're playing Miami this weekend, those gambler, the bookies in Chicago basically have connections with guys in Miami who are getting all the action on the Miami game, and they basically swap bets, so they protect each other. And there's really an underground, and this dates back to the 1960s, there's an underground, what they call this, it's called a layoff bet when two bookies do this. There's really an underground mob-controlled layoff network that spans the entire country. And so these little bookies bet with the bigger bookies, the bigger bookies bet with the biggest bookies, and the biggest bookies bet with even bigger bookies, and that's how all this kind of operates, and they protect themselves. Yeah. And that's how it makes it such a huge business. So even though you're betting $50 with a guy you might know, odds are even he may not know he's connected to organized crime, but when he does these layoff bets down the line, he is connected to organized crime. And so you have this, even let's say, we'll say it's a $100 billion a year industry. Well, that's four times what all the major sports leagues make combined. Okay, if they make $25 billion a year, the illegal underground gambling industry is making four times that a year. And so if you don't think that that money can influence the games you watch, you're incredibly naive. Hmm. Yeah, that's the it, – it makes you – you wonder who's pulling the strings behind all this. Then you hear the money. You know, they say follow the money. It's like, well – Exactly. This is the, – the games are all a big diversion to make the money from the gambling, it seems. Just really even – it's just – like I said, pulling the curtain back tonight, folks. Scary stuff in a way. Well, and the funny part is, is, and I understand why. I mean, the leagues have been fighting in courts to keep sports gambling illegal, okay? And um, they're fighting very hard, and they've been very successful. And they do this basically so they can maintain their innocence and their supposed integrity, because if a scandal should come up where some athlete was gambling or a game has been fixed, they can say, well, look, we wanted to keep this illegal all the time. We didn't want it legalized. We fight against gambling in our games and people gambling on our games, despite the fact they know that gambling fans are attentive fans and fans who watch more games than guys who don't gamble. Hmm. But at the same time, basically, by keeping it illegal, they're funding organized crime right? <laughs> and allowing organized crime to grow and get you know stronger and stronger. So the leagues are kind of helping the mob by keeping this stuff illegal, whereas opposed if it was legalized, you know, like it is in most of Europe, then everything can be monitored. And where it's monitored in Europe is how we've wound up with so many games being fixed in soccer and tennis and rugby and cricket is because where it's legal, 
it's monitored, and when it's monitored, they when they see something strange, they investigate it, and a lot of times when they've investigated it, it's led to games being fixed and a bigger criminal organization doing that. Well, here, nobody's watching that $100 billion in, mobs, in the mob's control. Nobody. Yeah. So nobody knows what's going on. So at the same time, you know, people say, well, games aren't being fixed. Well, that's because nobody's watching the money. Nobody knows what's going on. It's all just in this illegal underworld. Now, just to take a side tangent here, I found it interesting because uh, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 35, so I've seen the seen a lot of strange things sort of uh, burst to the scene and evolve and become big things in my life. And one of them is this whole fantasy sports thing. Is this sort of the league's way of uh, generating, obviously, like creating a new revenue stream and maybe sort of taking that control away from the organized crime by by sort of uh, making some kind of legal version of gambling. Obviously, it's uh, the legalities of all that are even more uh, sticky, but you know what I mean. Is it kind of like, yeah. is this the league's new way of sort of resting that that uh, that fulcrum away from organized crime and or, or, in addition to just sort of creating a revenue stream? Well, I don't think it's changing anything from organized crime because people are still betting on games despite mm. the rise in popularity of fantasy football and basketball and what have you. Um, what it is, though, is legally, fantasy sports are not gambling, okay? There's an actual law okay. passed in 2006 called the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, and that basically made, like, poker websites illegal. And it did so by basically blocking credit card companies from processing payments back and forth from gambling-type websites to people who wanted to play on them. But what happened is within that law, within that congressional act, there was a carve-out for fantasy sports. And basically somehow, which I'm still trying to exactly figure out, but somehow fantasy sports was ruled a game of skill and not a game of chance. Huh. Like poker, which apparently is all luck, <laughs> fantasy sports is all skill. I believe, believe that however you want to. I find it absurd, but the leagues actually, I know, had an active effect in creating that carve-out. And so what they did is because they knew a lot of people who play fantasy sports are basically gambling on it, despite the fact that now it's not called gambling anymore, and it led to the rise of these daily fantasy leagues, which you see advertised all the time, where literally there's millions of dollars at stake in every weekend of football, but nobody considers it gambling because, again, the carve-out says it's not gambling. Um, but the league knows that people playing fantasy sports are people watching every game, and that's what they want. They want right. people watching as many games as possible, and fantasy sports is a great way of getting people involved because you don't have to gamble. You don't have to have money on the line to do it, but enough people do where, you know, tonight's Monday Night Football game, for example, I'm sure there's many leagues where outcomes are going to hinge on what certain players do in this game, and people are going to watch until the very end of the fourth quarter because it's going to mean money to them personally. Hmm. So it's not gambling per se, but it is gambling. <laughs> and yeah. the league doesn't care because it's now legal and it's creating a fan base and it's creating viewers and it's helping with the ad revenue and the profits and the ratings and everything else. And it's not likely that it's going to lead to game fixing, although actually I think if it gets big enough, it could. Hmm. Now it seemed like... Uh based on the stuff that I read in the book, it seems like the, the game-fixing via the gamblers seems to come in a, in a way where they find, some, they find like, the weak link. They find somebody who, who is either, like, a referee or a, or a player who finds themselves in a situation where they have to throw the game to, to uh, get out of a mess. Is 
that seems to be kind of the uh, the recurring theme here? In a way, yeah. I mean, what happens, I think it's, I call it like a crime of opportunity, okay. especially at the pro level. Now, on the college level, I honestly think I could go fix a major college sporting event and get guys to shave points this weekend. Right, because they got no with money the, and everything. So yeah, with the money easier. I have in the bank, and I don't have any money in the bank, but <laughs> I, could, I think I could do it. I mean, because I don't think it would be that hard, because exactly like you said, the kids don't make any money. And, you know, you find enough high-level kids who know they're not good enough to get to the NFL or get to the NBA, but they're good enough to start on their college team, and their college team could even be a ranked college team. Well, you get to enough of them, give them a couple grand, and I think you could get them to shave points without too much trouble. On the pro level, it's a little more difficult because of the money involved, but it's not impossible. A lot of people think it's impossible because, well, these guys make a million dollars. But the fact is they don't all make a million dollars. <laughs> a lot of them make the league minimum. A lot of them make just over the league minimum. And after you pay taxes and your agent fees and everything else, you know, some of these guys are making a couple hundred grand a year, which is a lot better money than I make. Hmm. But at the same time, it's not the millions of dollars. And if you act like a pro athlete, like many of them do, and you buy the cars and the houses and you spend on the bottle service and whatever else, you right. go through that money right quick, suddenly you find yourself in problems. Hmm. You find yourself in money problems or what's happened in the past. Like you said, they get they get guys what they call jammed up. They get athletes who have a gambling addiction themselves. You get athletes who have drug problems. You get athletes who have women problems or even men problems on a certain level. And that's when you find somebody who has that sort of issue and you exploit it, which the mob has done for centuries, they found somebody's weakness and exploited it. That's how you can get guys compromised into fixing games. But at the same time, you don't necessarily need bribes and blackmail to get guys to fix games. I think athletes could just figure it out on their own and fix it themselves. They don't need another party to coerce them into hmm. doing it. If they're smart enough and you know they're out of money, they could say, hey, look, i got a real opportunity here if I make a couple of the right connections where I could go fix the game myself, shave some points, and double my salary in one weekend. Right. It's now the, the the weird part. I guess take me through in a sense, and it. I, I mean, I don't even really know uh, how you could really kind of explain it, but maybe you can. Like, how is it even? Because I watch these games, and I never. It's never dawned on me to even consider that it could be fixed until I really got into your stuff. So it's like, how would I even? How would they even go about fixing a game? What What are the you know, what what happens that makes it fixed, in a sense? Does someone just not give 100%? Someone, like, make errors and make it look like it was a mistake? Because I'm not a good actor, man. If I was in the like in the NBA or something and I was, like, tasked with fixing a game, I'd probably make it so badly obvious that that they'd be like, what are you doing, dude? You know, so part of me is like, how can they even do it so well? So, I mean, uh, enlighten me to this. How does, it, how does it all go down? Well, there's a couple things. For one is the FBI, for example, in the files that I dug up, they had a real problem proving games were fixed. Hmm. And what they would, you know, they could have information ahead of time from a bookie or from a gambler or from whatever source they had that would say, hey, we think player X is working with this gambler and they're going to shave points or they're going to lose this game. And that's exactly what would happen. And then the FBI would go back and look at the game film, look at how that player performed, and be exactly like you are, like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, maybe the guy had a bad game. I mean, it right. happens, you know. Guys drop balls, you know, errors are made, you know, free throws are missed. I mean, that's just a natural part of the game. So how do you say that guy did it on purpose? Now, at the same time, on the flip side, 
there's a famous gambler by the name of Lefty Rosenthal, and uh, the movie Casino with uh, Robert De Niro is actually based on Lefty Rosenthal. And Lefty, before he got in controlling casinos, he was a huge sports better, and he was known to fix games. He would actually have college players practice missing layups <laughs> <laughs> to get good enough to do it properly so it didn't look like they were fixing games. <laughs> I mean, Joe, Joe Namath back in the late 60s, he was actually accused a couple of times of potentially fixing games because he had two, I think in their season they went to the Super Bowl, he had two games where they were the Jets were heavily favored, but he threw something like five interceptions in those games. And people were like, well, what the heck was that, Joe? You know, and at that time there was a lot of accusations of NFL games being fixed. And Namath, I think in his autobiography, actually wrote something to the effect of saying, if I was going to fix a game, I wouldn't be dumb enough to throw five interceptions. What I would do is I would you know, lead a receiver and throw the ball out of bounds, or I would throw it short, or I would throw it long. I would do basically anything but make it completely obvious, like throwing five interceptions in the game. Hmm. So apparently Namath was smart enough to realize what to do to fix the game and not make it look like it was fixed. But, you know, did he or did he not actually do those things? Who can say? But I think those are the little things. Is Even there was a guy by the name, I think his name was Stephen Smith, who was fixing basketball games at Arizona State with a couple of college-age bookies, of all things. <laughs> and he kind of made a similar statement to the effect of, you know, you didn't do it by missing shots. You would do it by throwing, you know, a bad pass. You would, you know, there's little things you could do. You could play weaker defense, you know, just give a guy an extra step back in terms of space between you and him so he could go around you. Little things like that that can't be picked up on, hmm. but it's enough to allow, especially when you're talking about the point spread and shaving points, just, you know, two or three points here or there can make all the difference in the world to the gamblers. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard to it's hard to even see. But then the other category of game fixing we talk about uh, here is the, is the leagues fixing games and then that situation you get referees involved and sort of the whole idea that like they hold such tremendous sway over the outcome of the game in little subtle ways that that's another way people might be able to pick up on it that's where you really see people actually sort of make that leap and go oh the, the, you know that's when they seem to be more open to the idea of the games being suspect because because uh, of strange calls that happen from referees well, and it's funny, too, yeah, because it's like people, fans, for some reason, will take the blame completely off players almost instantaneously, but the referees, they, like, hold grudges against them. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it really is when you think about it. I mean, they really do. They have issues with referees and certain referees, and, you know, they can't believe it. But I think uh, the thing with the referees is because it is usually obvious, or at least, you know, the fans assume it's obvious, because they see, you know, strange penalties being called, or especially in football nowadays, you see instant replay not clear things up. You know, you see a call where they ruled the guy out of bounds, you see the replay, you see he was clearly in bounds, and then the referee will come back out in the field and say, no, you know what, he was out of bounds. And you're sitting at home watching on your big screen TV, and you're like, how could you be that stupid? Hmm. (laughs) And that's when I think, you know, we really are seeing manipulation. Because they can't be that stupid. They can't be. I mean, you clearly see the grasp, you know, the green grass between his foot and the sidelines. You can't rule him out of bounds, but you do. And the same with, you know, fumbles and a lot of other calls. What you also don't see is also the non-calls. You know, the calls where a guy is holding a player and he doesn't get called for holding. Or, you know, when two basketball players run into each other and it could be charging or it could be blocking. Well, 
it's a subjective call. What do you want to call it, charging or blocking? Well, who do you want to penalize and who don't you want to penalize? I mean, things like that you can manipulate and alter the flow and the outcome of these games. Even in baseball, you know, balls and strikes. You know, it may, you can't stop the ball from going over the fence when a guy hits it over the fence, but at the same time, you know, the first pitch is borderline. Well, if you call it a strike, you immediately put pressure on the hitter. If you call it a ball, you immediately put pressure on the pitcher. And you get enough of those borderline calls, and you can kind of sway the way the game will go. Right. Again, you, can't, you can't change it outright, but I think in many ways, and I don't think every game is fixed. I should make that clear. I don't think every NFL game is professional wrestling or anything. Right, like right, that. exactly. Yeah. I think it's, this is done you know, at certain times when the leagues feel it's necessary. And I think, like in the NFL, they may do certain things just to keep people watching into the fourth quarter, again, to make the networks and the advertisers all happy that, you know, it's a close game and people stay to the very end. I mean, I think many people have accused, like, the NHL and NBA of, you know, a series, a playoff series that should be a four-game sweep suddenly goes to six games because of a few funky calls. Well, that benefits everybody. (laughs) You know, it benefits the arena. It benefits the television networks. Again, the advertisers. Everybody makes more money because of that. And again, if you're a business, that's what you're in business to do. So why do you think they wouldn't do that as a fan? I mean, why are you so sure that everything's pure and clean in sports when you look at everything else, you know, business, politics, even religion to a certain extent, and you see corruption? Why do you just give sports a free pass? Well, it's interesting, too, in a sense, because you wonder, now I'm sure you'd, uh, maybe you'd know of sort of a lesser uh, case, but it seems like the, the only fame, the only case of, of of a fixed game really that i even could know about is the is the black Sox world series seems like sports has quote-unquote been like untarnished ever since then you, you i'm surprised there hasn't been some grand uh you know fixed game that's come out you know at some point in the last hundred years but as far as i know maybe on a college level or something like that but but as far as i know there's never been any sort of scandalous huge scandal uh of a fixed game right no, exactly, and that's that's the kind of scary part is, like you said, baseball hasn't had it supposedly happen since 1919. The NHL hasn't had a uh, supposedly fixed game since the, like, 1940s, and who cared about hockey back then? Uh, no, but the NBA hasn't had anything since, like, 1954, and the NFL claims it's never, never had a game fixed, ever, in its history. It's never happened. It's been attempted, but it's never happened, according to them. And, I mean, I find this completely and 100% absurd. Mm, Because, again, you look at the world. I mean, right now, I believe the state I heard was there were 50 different countries in in the world right now that are investigating games being fixed within their country. And, I mean, they were talking, again, soccer, tennis, rugby, cricket. I mean, soccer is the main one. I mean, soccer, we know, is the world's biggest sport. It culminates in the world's biggest sporting event, which is the World Cup. And we know soccer matches all over the world for years are fixed. (laughs) They're corrupted. And and they have fixed. Gamblers have gotten to players and fixed matches in the World Cup. Now, if you can get guys to fix the World Cup, the biggest sporting event in the world, how can you be so naive as to believe gamblers couldn't get to an NBA game or an NFL game and Hmm. fix that? You know, I mean, if you can fix, and they fixed, you know, uh, Olympic soccer games as well. If you can fix games in the Olympics, why do you think you can't fix some late season NFL game that nobody cares about between one team that's five and ten and another team that's four and eleven? Why do you think that's impossible? And why do you think it's never happened? 
because nobody's looking for it. Right. <laughs> that's that's what it's kind of fallen on me, unfortunately, to you know carry this torch, is the fact that nobody's looking for it. The media is not looking for it. The leagues don't want to find it. The professional gambling industry, like Las Vegas, they don't want to know about these things. And the FBI, the guys who should be doing it, basically quit doing this job in the 1980s. So if nobody's looking for it, who's going to find it? Right, and you make the point uh, on your website that there's a stunning sort of uh, lack of whistleblowers to all this. And the ones that do sort of come out and talk about it, like uh, Tim Donaghy, they they, either get, they don't get taken seriously or they get marginalized. It's kind of like the classic whistleblower syndrome, but it's even exactly. sort of worse in a lot of ways. So you, you don't get anyone really coming out to talk about this either. It would be interesting to see if uh, sometime in our lifetimes things change. But Well, and, you know, that that bothers me too in the fact that I, that's the counter-argument always to me. Hmm. Okay, that I always get attacked with, well, if games are being fixed, especially for television. You know, gambling's one thing. They seem to allow that to go on. But if it's being fixed for tam- television... I always hear, well, somebody would talk. It would come out. Somebody would talk. And I would say, well, why would you talk about it? And they say, well, because be, you'd, be, you'd make millions revealing that secret. <laughs> and, and I'm not keen. I've heard this argument. I can't even tell you how many times. If I had a dollar for every time I heard it, I probably would have a million dollars. But they always say, well, you'd make you know, all this money revealing the secret. I said, how? how? What do you have to gain as a whistleblower, especially in something like this? I mean, say you were a player. An NBA player, a semi-average player, but you played on a really good team, maybe a championship team, and you knew uh, basically the NBA allowed you to win a championship. Now, what are you going to do to reveal this secret? First of all, what evidence do you have? Uh, nothing besides your word, right? Right. I mean, the NBA wouldn't write it down on some you know NBA letterhead saying we made sure that your team won the you know championship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that just doesn't exist. There's nothing like it. So you have no real evidence, first of all, to go on. So that's your shot against you. But say you write a book. Well, you'd have to sell – trust me, I sell books. You, you don't make money writing books unless you're Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to sell a million books to make your million dollars. You actually would probably do better being a marginal player on this championship team, selling your identity as being, I was on this championship team because people still want your autograph and still people make appearances and stuff like that. You know, guys make careers after their time in sports – doing just that. Yeah, these autograph shows and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly, and stuff like that. So, I mean, you make more money that way. So what's your incentive to come out? Because you see guys like Conseco, who wrote his book about all the steroids in baseball and how he basically introduced it, and he got destroyed by the sports media. People called him an, you know, crazy. People said he was lying. But down the line, we've learned that he was accurate. He was telling the truth. He was right. So, I mean, he took all this abuse he probably made a little money from selling this book, but not enough to stop him from having to, you know, take these amateur boxing matches for crying out loud to right. keep him, you know, employed. I mean, there was nothing to gain from doing this besides maybe a clear conscience. So, you know, I think it'd be really hard to have a whistleblower come out and talk about this thing, especially, I mean, at least Canseco had the evidence because he was busted for steroids. He really, like, seeded, like Johnny Appleseed, throughout Major League Baseball, wherever he went other steroid users came about. But, you know, if you don't have solid concrete evidence of what you're accusing, perhaps, you know, one of the biggest, if you want to call it a conspiracy, in, you know, sports history, you're screwed. You really yeah. are. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, you mentioned the uh, the PEDs. It's, I find it always kind of fascinating because uh, baseball, they're really, it's like super scandalous, you know, when somebody gets busted for that. But then you... Then you see these other sports where it happens like in football and no one even cares. 
And I don't even, you know, I don't think it, it rarely, rarely ever happens in, in basketball, which is stunning to me because it's like, that's such a huge sport. It would stand to reason that, that there's PEDs involved in all that. But it's like, the, I guess the, I guess what I'm saying is sort of like the, 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 you know, the burden, the expectation, the, uh, the, 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 the critical attitude about, about PED seems to apply to such varying degrees to the different sports. It's remarkable, uh, you know, why, how, how, disparate the uh the people's opinions on it is well it's because like you said i mean the nba for example the whole alex rodriguez and tony bosch thing which came about the whole biogenesis thing that happened in miami that really basically destroyed alex rodriguez's career which many people said well good riddance but (laughs) regardless of the fact you know tony bosch he they were it's known that he supplied the same kind of drugs he did alex rodriguez to members of the nba and nfl but nobody's ever investigated that. Nobody's dug that up. The NBA didn't want to know about it. The NFL didn't want to know about it. And Major League Baseball bought a lot of their evidence from him and people related to him. But none of the sports writers seemed to go after anybody but Alex Rodriguez because he was the big name and the big story. But what about the NBA guys? I mean, here's a guy, Tony Bosch, running biogenesis, basically giving out performance-enhancing drugs in Miami. And here you have guys like LeBron James playing in Miami. Now, were they connected? I don't know. But did anybody ever look into the connection? Because, again, we know he supplied these drugs to NBA players. Who were they? What happened? It just got, you know, washed under the table. And the same I brought up, like, on Twitter, with uh, the NFL finally started testing for human growth hormone, HGH, just yeah. last Monday. Now, I was interviewed on a radio show in Florida, oddly enough, um, by a <laughs> guy who's a member of the Pro Football Writers of America, and on his show, you know, on broadcast, he said, I know that at least 75% of players in the NFL are on HGH, on human growth hormone. This was a couple of years ago. But my question on Twitter was, okay, the NFL, you started HGH testing last Monday. Where's all the suspensions? Where's all the positive tests? Because I have a guy who just told me that 75% of your league is on the stuff, um, maybe you gave him enough time to switch to some other drug, but probably not all these guys. So where's all the positive tests? Yeah. Where's all the suspensions? I mean, I think the drug testing policies of all these leagues, I know they developed because of public relations reasons, and I think they continue because of public relations reasons. It's it's that peace of mind for fans. Yeah. Well, they test these guys. They can't be on the drugs. Everything's good. We don't have to worry about it. But yet you look at what they do, and these guys, they're superhuman. They really are. And it's, it seems like it's a long, uh, it's a long narrative in a sense too, because like in the seventies and eighties, they were doing different drugs, and then they moved on to steroids. So they're probably on to something else, like uh, probably HGH. But then they're going to move off from that eventually, anyway. So they're always trying to catch them, anyway. So it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a never-ending sort of cycle of, uh, of the, of, of, of the players trying to stay ahead of the testing or stay ahead of the public relations aspect of it. Well, and it's pretty easy for them to do because apparently these chemists who come up with these things, they create things before there's tests for them, obviously. Right. So as long as, you know, they can fool the tester, you know, they're free and clear to take whatever they want. I mean, I remember one of the things um, with, like, regards to Lance Armstrong and how everybody thought, oh, he was clean and everybody, you know, held him up as he never tested positive for anything despite now what we know. I remember watching a show, I think it might have been on, like, the Discovery Channel, where they were talking about doping and bicycling. And they had this one scientist guy 
from he might have been from Italy or France or I don't remember where. Yeah. But on the show he talked about the Tour de France and the mountain stages in Tour de France which are extremely physically demanding and very difficult and it really separates kind of like the men from the boys in the race during that period of time. And he was saying the times and how well Lance Armstrong did in those stages was like one and a half times greater than anybody else on the tour. I mean, he was like, you know, at a level above your head, and everybody else was kind of like at your belt line. Yeah. When he kind of showed it, you know, on TV, he's like, you know, Lance was up here, everybody else was down here, and he said, we know some of the guys down here in the lower level were busted for blood doping and, you know, other types of performance-enhancing drugs. He goes, how is it possible if Lance Armstrong is not taking anything that he can perform one and a half times better than anybody else in these stages of the Tour de France. He said he can't be. He can't be doing that naturally. He goes, he's doing something. He goes, I can't prove what he's doing, but I can show you from the numbers and the statistics what he's doing isn't natural. Yeah. <laughs> and this was well before, I mean, this was probably 10 years before all the Lance Armstrong stuff came out to be a reality that he was blood doping and whatever else. But, I mean, guys see these sorts of things and, Many fans just don't want to believe it because, well, Lance Armstrong is such a good story and he represents the United States Post Office and whatever else. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, yeah, it's interesting stuff. It's interesting stuff. I have a theory that uh, that somehow Tiger Woods, like, oh, he kind of, like, went, went underground. When all that stuff happened with his, with his personal life, that that, that was kind of like the Michael Jordan goes to play baseball situation where he kind of had to, bail out because he because he was mixed up in peds but that's on my own personal theory folks so don't, don't well you're not alone though i mean there's been the allegations of him too being connected to doctors i think up in canada and that sort of thing yeah yeah and again you look at him you look at him you know when he was an 18 19 20 year old guy and he was nowhere as big as he is now and i mean that's what tipped everybody off with barry bonds was that you know he was kind of a skinny baseball player and then all of a sudden, at the age of like 35 or even older than that, he suddenly added like 30 pounds of muscle in one off season. And I mean, I always take the task, the major league, the baseball writers of America, for the whole steroid era, because they saw stuff like that. They saw Barry Bonds come back to spring training much bigger than he'd ever been, and nobody seemed to dare and say this ain't right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, even during the whole Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire home run hitting thing, nobody seemed to say, you know, something's wrong here. I mean, they didn't have to accuse those guys specifically. They could say, look, you know, we think steroids are into baseball because these guys are getting bigger than ever before. They're hitting the ball further than ever before. They're hitting more home runs than ever before. Something's wrong. And yet they didn't do that because, again, there was so much money. Yeah, I think like... Baseball had just suffered that strike. Hmm. They were coming back because of that. And there was all this money involved. Yeah, I think like one guy like mentioned something in passing, and he was like vilified by the media. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, the guy by the name of Steve Wilstein. Yeah, he was one of the first guys he wrote about seeing a vial of Andes or Andro or whatever Andrestone. I forget what the drug is on Mark McGuire's uh, shelf in his locker. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he basically got ostracized for writing that, <laughs> despite the fact that it was true. And, you know, he dared question this great story for Major League Baseball and baseball history, and now we know, well. That whole history was bogus anyway. Mm.
listening to Banal of America Audio. Beyond just sort of like fixing a game, it's like the league sort of fixes the storylines of the season or the storyline of the sport in general. So it seems like there's teams that are sort of favorite nations, and then there's teams that just get completely, uh, they don't get any, any coverage or sort of any, any of the buzz, if you will. And it definitely seems like that's, that's all manufactured. Well, and I think to a certain extent it is. I mean, I think you had the Red Sox and the whole Boston Strong thing. I mean, it, it, you know, I don't believe in coincidence, hmm. especially when you're in a billion-dollar industry like sports. You know, suddenly the Boston Strong thing comes and, the Red Sox go from being a last place team to being World Series champions to back to being a last place team this year. <laughs> you look right. at you know the New Orleans Saints. New Orleans Saints had this forty year history of ineptitude. Suddenly, Hurricane Katrina strikes the city, and all of a sudden, the Saints single handedly apparently rebuilt the city of New Orleans, and they would come out and win a Super Bowl. You know, two or three years later. I mean, I don't believe these are necessarily just happy coincidences, like the Patriots winning after nine eleven. I don't think those things just happen to the benefit of the league by accident. I just I don't buy it. Yeah. So I think and especially again when we go back to what we talked about earlier, how the league does have the ability to control these things, you know, if they do so, again, isn't it the best business decision because who didn't love the Saints in the whole Hurricane Katrina story? You know, hmm. I mean everybody everybody in America seemed to love that story and roll with it, despite the fact that it was just nonsense. <laughs> it was still a feel good story and people bought into it. Right, right, and I've, I've really been on the uh, the Royals bandwagon this month, but you can kind of see it in that whole thing too, where it's like they're this this plucky underdog, thirty years not in the playoffs, and all of a sudden they're on this crazy run. It's like it can make you sort of do a double take where you're you're like, anytime they're like, it couldn't have been written any better. You you, sh- you really should stop for a moment and be like, but was it? Yeah, and I bring that up a lot of times in the fixes in how many times guys have said exactly that. You know, you couldn't have scripted it any better. Well, then maybe was it scripted? <laughs> wasn't it? I mean, like you say, with the Royals. I know a lot of people who, you know, they're baseball fans, and they said, well, I'm going to root for the Royals because they're the underdog. Well, why do you care if the Royals win? You know, if you're a Cub fan or you're a fan of whatever baseball team, if you're not a Royals fan, why do you care who wins the World Series? Because that's not your team. But yet they're able to make you care about one team or the other just because you're a baseball fan and just because you still want to watch that game and you still want to get some sort of joy from watching it. They create these storylines, and you buy right into them as a fan. And right. This. And not to get too like metaphysical in a sense, but it, 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 they're also they may not. Uh, there also may be something sort of uh, metaphysical at work here in a sense, where if they, if they get enough people sort of rooting for the Royals, maybe there's something in the ether. You know, we are a paranormal program, but you know, maybe there's something in the ether that just sort of gets it that that last little push that just sort of like pushes the ball the right way. In a really metaphysical sense. I mean, it's, it, maybe they may not even know they're doing it, uh, you know, the sports leagues. But maybe if it's like if they reach a certain point where people enough people are behind sort of an idea, it takes on a life of its own. Maybe that's what's going on in a lot of ways, too. It's, you know, I would not write that off. <laughs> I think, again, like you say, it's always a possibility. Yeah. I mean, they've done enough scientific things to say, you know, people can influence a random number generator by thinking about it hard enough. You know, who's to say that's not possible? But I think, again, I think it's more the leagues are just preying on these fans hmm. 
who want who want to keep wanting <laughs> and that's and that they use whatever means they can to get to feed that habit to feed that addiction yeah yeah let me say i lost my train of thought here i had a question i was going to ask you so let me throw into one of my notes here uh we'll talk about this is like the most famous one of the most famous uh conspiracy theories like ever with sports and that's the uh the 85 nba draft lottery now i watched the video like maybe i don't know an hour before we we sat down to talk so like a couple hours ago i was watching the video it is pretty interesting but at the same time i'm kind of like still on the fence about it but i guess talk talk to people about this uh this 85 draft conspiracy theory because that seems to be one of the biggest sports conspiracies like ever in a lot of ways well you know the thing that drives me nuts in a way before I even talk about that, is just that term conspiracy theory. Hmm. Because I got because I wrote the fixes in, and it is, I guess, in the general sense, a conspiracy theory. Um, because I talk about leagues fixing their own games for television ratings and what have you. Is you know I got labeled as the conspiracy, the sports conspiracy theorist, and apparently I'm the only one out there, so I'm the biggest one, <laughs> you know, in the <laughs> nation, in the world, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the thing is, is it, it bothers me because I'm not really a conspiracy theorist. What I am is I'm a skeptic. And I hate the way the word skeptic got hijacked. Right. Because, you know, there's the Skeptical Inquirer and there's Skeptic Magazine. But those people are really only skeptical of people like me. They're not skeptical of the mainstream idea. They're skeptical of people like me who question the mainstream idea, which to me makes me the skeptic, not them. Right. (laughs) I'm the skeptic. So when you look at something like this NBA draft in 1985, you know, you had this Patrick Ewing, who was, you know, like a guaranteed can't-miss prospect, although occasionally those guys still miss. But he was this, you know, sure thing. And you had, what was it, seven teams, I think, vying to be the top pick in the lottery to get Patrick Ewing. And six of the teams were far-flung places, you know, Seattle, Sacramento, places most NBA fans didn't care about. But one was New York, the New York Knicks. And it just so happened that the New York Knicks wound up getting the first pick, and of course, Klein Patrick Ewing, and he went on to a Hall of Fame career with the New York Knicks. But the actual lottery itself, many people, including myself, think it was rigged. And wouldn't it be a smart move to rig it? Because why have a cat miss prospect like Patrick Ewing play in Sacramento where no one's going to see him? It's much better for the league to have the entire league, you know, not Sacramento included. It's better for Patrick Ewing to be in New York City because it's the country's number one media market. They're constantly on national television. It draws interest to the league, and that actually in turn benefits places like Sacramento and Seattle because of the revenue sharing and what have you within these networks. But the actual event, I mean, you kind of have to see it to understand it, but (laughs) there's seven cards, one for each team, and envelopes that are put into a hopper, the hopper is spun, and then the commissioner draws out, which is the number one pick. Well, when they're dealing them into the hopper, whoever the guy is who's dealing them, the fourth card, which would be the middle card, whether you stop top, whether you started from the top or the bottom, the middle card is the fourth card, gets, for some reason, violently slammed against the side of the hopper. Hmm. Now, it makes no sense to deal the cards into the hopper when it's going to be spun and mixed up anyway, but he does this, and he dog-ears that corner when he does it. And so they spin this hopper, which is clear, a big, clear basketball. They stop, but the commissioner goes to reach in. He grabs, like, two or three envelopes, tosses two aside, keeps the dog-eared one, 
And lo and behold, the dog-eared one is the one with the New York Knicks logo, and they win the number one draft pick, and they get Patrick Ewing, and everything works out for everybody involved. And so, you know, I've heard it rumors that the envelope was frozen and, you know, it was done through sleight of hand or whatever, but I think it's really obvious when you watch it enough times what exactly happened. And then when you think about it, why it happened, it makes perfect sense because, again, it's the best business decision for the league to make at that time. Hmm. And even... Yeah, because even because like when I was watching it, I was trying to figure out if it was really damaged enough for them to for for David Stern to really pick up on it. But then now thinking more about it, it's like it's kind of like the shell game in a way. If he, as long as the guy sort of who throws the into the barrel makes it obvious which one he's supposed to watch when they roll yeah. the thing, he probably could have kept his eye on it enough to to be able to do it. You know. Especially when there's only seven. Right. You know, it's not like there's a hundred ping pong balls and you had to draw one out. I mean, there's seven cards. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, like you say, it makes it pretty easy to follow that one, you know. Yeah, as long as you know which one it is that you're supposed yeah. to be watching, then he should have been able to easily pick up on it. So, it's uh oh, I remember now. The, the, the my my lost train of thought just pulled into the station, which is always a good sign. So, the I don't know if you you had to have seen this story that happened over the summer. I thought this was remarkable. It's another thing that kind of made me uh, think about your work. And this was during the All-Star game. Do you remember the pitcher? And Derek Jeter got the hit, and then they asked him uh, during the game, you know, between the innings or whatever, uh, he was in the dugout, and he's like, yeah, I kind of served it up to him. And then, oh, it, yeah, yeah. and then it became a huge thing, and it was like, that That to me was kind of a glimpse in a way into into what may really be going on and how badly they don't want anyone to talk about it, because... I think he had to offer a retraction to the whole thing before the game was over. It was like, you know, he gave up the hit in the first inning. In the fifth inning, he said he served it up to him. And by the ninth, he was like, I was just joking, folks. Please don't hate me or run me out of baseball. So it was a crazy microcosm of uh, of what may really be going on. Well, and that's funny because you saw it at the end of the season with Derek Jeter. I mean, for some reason, I, I still don't even understand why, but this being Derek Jeter's last season, it was the, you know, it was a circus Every appearance he made at every stadium was like, "Oh, don't miss, you know, Derek Jeter." Well, he he's a good baseball player. He's not Babe Ruth, but he's pretty good. So I understand it. But at the very last game of the season, the last game he played in Yankee Stadium, you know, there's a lot of theory about the last hit he got was a game-winning RBI that won the game for the team. A lot of people thought that was really highly suspicious and a served-up pitch as well. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen that before. I mean. Cal Ripken hit a couple of famous home runs, and I was a huge Cal Ripken fan as a kid. That seemed highly suspicious. One in his last All-Star game, and one in the game where he bake, uh, broke uh, Lou Gehrig's all-time record for number of games played. Both of those pitches seemed to be really fat, easy, served-up pitches. Now, granted, he still has to hit it out of the park, but as a professional hitter, it's got to be a lot easier if you got a fat pitch than if you got a hard pitch to hit. Hmm. And so, I mean, yeah, exactly. The funny thing was the reaction. I mean, here the All-Star game really doesn't mean anything. They made it kind of mean home field advantage in the World Series, but for the most part it really doesn't mean anything. It was kind of an exhibition game, and people, like you said, went crazy <laughs> because there was a thought that, oh, my God, this might not be real. Well, duh. <laughs> it might <laughs> <Yeah>. not be real. <laughs> well, why, why are you getting so bent out of shape out of it? I mean, it's like, you know, you get flipped out because of, a, you know, the high score in the NHL All-Star game or the NBA All-Star game. I mean, it they're exhibitions, and I think all these games really are exhibitions. It's just you seem to want to place more meaning on other games than you do these games, but it's what it is. Yeah, it's uh, it's very strange. Now the other one, um, the other fixed game that I, I'd never heard the story before or the theory, um, 
was the the uh, Super Bowl three conspiracy theory. And I, I'll let me actually let me stop because you 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 were talking about conspiracies, and it's like the idea of conspiracy and everything. I totally agree with you, especially about the skeptic part. You you actually summed up the problem with skeptics better than anybody I've heard on on this show in a, in a long long time. That is the problem. They're they're skeptical of anyone who who thinks against the grain, which is sad. Um, but conspiracies, it's like. This is sports is a grand conspiracy in a way. I mean, it's people are, get confused. They think that like Roger Goodell like owns the NFL or some crap, or or David Stern owns the NBA or something. It's no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a small coterie of vastly wealthy people who own these little enterprises throughout the country and then work together to generate profit. I mean, if that's, I mean, what more of a conspiracy do you need, folks? That is a legitimate conspiracy. They're just they're colluding to to make money, whether the games are fixed or not. They're that that's their whole goal here is to work together to make money. So you talk about well, conspiracies. That's that's it right there. Well, I was going to say one thing that really I think proves my point, which many people tend to write off, was there actually was a known, proven conspiracy in Major League Baseball, which was collusion, which yeah. took place in the mid 1980s, where all the owners, all the owners, every team owner literally gotten together with the room with the commissioner and basically agreed we're not going to pay for anybody else's free agents when they come on the market. And this happened for three years in a row. I mean, if they hadn't made it so blatantly obvious what they were doing, they would have likely gotten away with it. But the fact of the matter was every owner agreed to this idea, and it didn't matter if it cost you wins or losses. It was all about the money. It was They all wanted to save money. They all wanted to keep player salaries down. So they all colluded, a conspiracy, the true definition of a conspiracy, they colluded to ensure this happened, and it did. It wound up costing them $280 million in legal fees down the line. But the fact of the matter was the owners all agreed to do this. And you're right, the owners are the ones who run these leagues. You know, Roger Goodell, the way our government should be, you know, like Obama, he should just be kind of a figurehead. <laughs> he shouldn't yeah. be the guy in charge, and that's the same with the NFL. Roger Goodell really isn't in charge. It's the 32 owners that are in charge of this league, and they are what make things happen, and they're what they say really what's what. They just allow Roger Goodell to kind of be the you know figurehead for this whole enterprise. Hmm. But the fact is those 32 guys are running the show, and they'll do what they need to do to be profitable. And I think that's why people get hung up on the fact that, well, why would they rig you know a Super Bowl to let you know this team win and not that team? Well, you know, why not, when is it going to be our turn, when is it going to be that team's turn? Well, the fact is, every year one team has to win. It's going to happen regardless if it's fixed or not. One team has to win. The question is, how does it benefit the league? When you have a league like the NFL, where 80% of all revenue made is shared, well, then you could see, okay, maybe the New Orleans Saints storyline after Katrina is a great moneymaker. So when the Lions, I think they were like 1-15 in that year, they were going to basically make as much money as the Saints did, and the Saints won the Super Bowl just because of the way the league is constructed. So maybe the Lions owner would be like, hey, the Saints win, that's cool, because that's going to be more money in my coffers because more people are interested in the Saints. I mean, yeah. that's the way these things work. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so to circle back to the to the uh, to what started me on that tangent, Super Bowl three, and uh, also Super Bowl, but mostly Super Bowl three, and how. There seemed like uh, it all seemed to work a little too conveniently for the league. That might be the best way of putting it, but I'll, I'll set you up there to sort of recount, uh, recount the details on this. Well, I wasn't the first one to point this out about Super Bowl three. I mean, there's a former player, a guy by the name of Bernie Parrish, and that's kind of one of the things that kind of got me started down this road, is he wrote a book called, they call it a game. And Bernie um, 
he was a former member of the Cleveland Browns, and then he actually worked in the Players Association, the union, for a long time. But he wrote this book in the early 1970s, and he basically said Super Bowl three was too good to be true. And he said it literally made the NFL what it is, and he's right. Back at that era, in the early couple of Super Bowls, the AFL and the NFL were two separate leagues that had merged. And what people forget is that the AFL was kind of a laughing stock. They were kind of almost like, you know, the XFL tried to be <laughs> when Vince McMahon started his uh, own football league. Yeah. They were a different kind of league, and NFL fans did not really accept the AFL, despite the fact that nowadays professional football is a lot more like the AFL than the old NFL. At the time, there was probably, they figured the fans were about three to one, three in favor of the NFL, one for the AFL. And what happened was, is when they had those first two Super Bowls and the NFL team, the Packers, demolished the AFL team, all the owners in both leagues panicked because they were here, they were merging these two leagues together. There was millions of dollars, what would become billions of dollars on the line down the road, and they were afraid the fans were not going to accept what they were doing. So here comes Super Bowl three, and you have Joe Namath and the New York Jets facing basically, literally, without exaggerating, one of the greatest teams the NFL has ever fielded in the Baltimore Colts that season. And lo and behold, Namath predicts that the Jets are going to win. He guarantees it. And sure enough, the Jets go out there and win the game. And everybody calls it, you know, one of the greatest you know upsets of all times. But the fact of the matter is, that was a huge business win for the NFL. And it really solidified the merger. It really created the modern-day NFL. And it meant millions upon millions of dollars to every one of those owners, even the Colts owner who lost that game. Yeah. And it set the stage. It really sort of birthed the Super Bowl. Like you say in the book that, you know, there was serious doubt about whether they would even have a Super Bowl anymore or, or you know, it was like, would yeah. you really need this game or or what? So it's amazing when you see how huge the Super Bowl is now, <laughs> how how it may, how it was on, on the fringe there for a while. Well, exactly. And like I say, I mean, it created the modern NFL in a very real way. And it gets lost I think over the course of history, you know, fans don't really know necessarily know the history or even fans forget the what reality of that situation. Like you said, there was a time where the Super Bowl was really going to be eliminated. They didn't see the need for it. I mean, you know, you think about it today where it's like a national holiday, the Super Bowl. There's a point in time early on when the game was kind of an afterthought and the game was almost going to be canceled and eliminated. I mean, that's how big that moment in time was. And like I said, it's, it was a huge business win for the NFL and the AFL owners, and it made them multimillionaires just because of that one outcome. And when you look at the game and what the Colts did and how the literally the great, one of the greatest teams in NFL history completely fell apart in that game, it made me wonder, and it's made other people wonder, well, did they really fall apart or did they intentionally come apart at the seams because of what it meant to everyone else involved? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, uh, if we're sort of running with the idea of these sort of like behind-the-scenes machinations of all this, it's sort of interesting because I remember growing up, uh, I grew up like in the 80s and uh, obviously up till today. So, <laughs> But I grew up in the 80s and in the 90s, and uh, the Super Bowl was always like terrible until like the last decade or maybe 15 years. Then it started becoming really good. You notice that? It was like it used to be really bad, like the game. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up at the same – I'm just a few years older than you are. Mm. And I, I, the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the Super Bowl, to me as a kid, was 